0: The key thing that we draw in our report is not around just the top line customer count, it's the dormancy. How many of these customers are actually actively engaged with that banking provider? Because that represents your true customer base. The rest is just wasted money. A partnership and ecosystem strategy needs to really come to life. Uh, And unless it does, you just bring on logos and big name partners, but it doesn't translate to any meaningful downstream revenue or P&L for the actual banking provider. If you think what is the natural advantage of a bank relative to other non-bank institutions is the ability to take deposits and therefore have the lowest funding costs. And if you are going to leverage that, use that in a lending game. You have just heard from Benjamin Quinlan, the CEO and managing partner of Quinlan & Associates. He is the former chairman of the FinTech Association of Hong Kong and currently chairs the Innovation and Technology Committee at the Australian Chamber of Commerce. In this conversation, we are taking a deep dive into a recently published Quinlan and Associates research report on the APAC digital banking landscape. So let us dive right in.
1: Good morning, Ben. Welcome to the show. morning, Norbert. Thank you for having me. We have the occasion of the latest Quinlan and Associates report on digital banking across APAC. Very interesting and insightful document and we want to take a deeper dive into that today. Before we do that though, maybe First principles, you're an entrepreneur yourself. You run your strategic consulting firm. If you were to start a FinTech business today and you have many options doing that, would you actually recommend people or would you do yourself start a digital bank in this day and age?
0: (laughs) As is, I think it would be extremely difficult proposition. It depends, A, on which market and then two, on what focus area. I think a lot of the digital banks in the region have gone out the gates really flying the flag for retail. I think this is probably one of the most saturated and difficult to disrupt spaces. We have seen it work to some degree in different markets, but I think the reality is if I were to be a betting man and think about where I would focus on a digital bank. I would focus on setting up an SME-focused digital bank right now. That would be where I think, regardless of which market you are around the world, there is still a credit gap problem that needs to be solved. And if you can get in and resolve it, you're in a very unique position.
1: So it's ultimately a credit story. It's a lending to SMEs or even MSMEs as you have it in your report
0: that's right i just think that's the natural low-hanging fruit i think in the report we draw the comparison between a market like malaysia which is more the emerging developing economy over half of their msmes get rejected in their credit applications even when you juxtapose it with hong kong which is one of the most developed markets in the world 40% on average of the SMEs for the past six years have either been rejected or only partially approved for their credit applications. So it's not a markedly different picture as you would see in things like bank, underbank populations and retail. The MSME credit gap is very real, regardless of where you are around the world
1: that data is pretty much available and everybody can draw their own conclusions from it. Right. Why hasn't that move into that MSME space happened just yet?
0: It's a lot more difficult when it comes to data and credit scoring. I think when you're looking at the world of retails, a lot of the metadata has been absorbed through the usage of people's phones, their core records, their payments data. When you come into the MSME space, a lot of these firms aren't necessarily digitalized they don't necessarily have the best bookkeeping and transaction records. As a result of that, it becomes more difficult and banks are naturally a lot more risk averse. When it comes to KYC, you're not just looking at the KYC of the individual, you then need to go through to UBO, the ultimate beneficial owner, which also gets opaque depending on which markets you are and how complex the corporate structure is. But most of the markets are asking for collateral requirements, which a lot of firms don't have, right? And then the personal guarantees. And that always makes me laugh when you're asking a limited liability company for a personal guarantee. And not just a personal guarantee with a founder, but usually among all their shareholders. That creates a massive roadblock and a lot of unhappiness with SMEs looking to get a loan.
1: That's a big topic in Japan, even without the neo banking stories thrown in, because it's really an inhibitor for growth. The question, though, is also. If you go into that space, do you ultimately need to be a bank? Because there are some players that try to match private investor into invoice financing and working capital financing and so on, basically as a capital markets play and not going down the banking route to tap a very similar market, I think.
0: You're right. So there's quite a lot of new players. You've got the likes of Velo Trade, Cupital up here in Hong Kong. If you move down to Southeast Asia, it's the Madalku and funding societies, there are quite a lot of platforms that do the SME-focused financing. Do you need to be a bank? It's an interesting question. I think the one major competitive advantage is if you are a bank, you get low-cost funding or you have a much better probability to get it. A lot of these independent platforms are still operating off funding channels where they're paying an arm and a leg to actually secure that facility. They need a long track record in order for those wholesale funding costs or facilities to really be competitive in terms of price so i always think you're going to have a natural funding cost advantage in terms of being a bank however the interesting anomaly here is that if i go and speak to most of these firms whether you're a bank or whether you're one of these platforms every single one of them wants to get the balance sheet risk and credit risk off their books because it screws up your valuation it puts your business and your p l at risk And they want to work out a way to just be a channel and or a SaaS based solution, which really bodes well for future exit opportunities and value. There's that kind of anomaly you need to trade off. Yes, you can get the funding. Yes, you can lend on your own book if you're a bank. But by the same token, a lot of these players are scratching their heads saying, how do we get all of this off our books? Because we really don't want to wear the risk.
1: Let's go back to the banking licenses. From my perspective, it was super interesting to follow what happened in Southeast Asia, because in Japan, we don't have a digital banking license. There's no requirement to have a physical branch if you have a banking license. So our quote unquote neobanks are 20 years old. That's for me, the organic growth of a digital banking ecosystem and we haven't been overrun, so there's not 50 digital banks here. Well, in Southeast Asia, in Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, it's orchestrated. There's a certain number of licenses that's being made available by the regulator and it it feels almost like it's less capitalistic and saying that we have a certain number and that's where we limit it, right? Why not let anybody who wants and has the credibility the funding the requirements of a controlling compliance framework and wants to do a bank, why not let them do a digital bank and fight it out?
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think ring fencing this whole idea of a pure play digital banking license. In my view is it seems like it's innovative on the one hand, it seems like it's forward thinking to force the hand of new players coming in the market to not just set up a branch based operation or one that requires a lot of physical touch points. So I agree with the premise that sits behind it, but I also think that any player that comes in with the capabilities who can set up. a bank, be it branch based or be it digital only, should be able to do it based on their own merits. I think that's actually very important. And one of the other things to call out here is if you look at the license applications that were granted in countries like Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, it's really just the usual suspects, right? It's just the same large scale players that are going in and doing this new experiment. I understand on the part of the central banks that they need to exercise a degree of prudence and caution with respect to only wanting to back people that have the capital buffer to actually ride out this journey. But does that bode well for innovation and like truly unique disruptors coming in? I know there were a lot of firms out there that were applying that were fantastic, but none of them actually were on the shortlist and it just ended up being the same old name, so to speak.
1: No offense, but obviously Hong Kong and Singapore are somewhat smaller markets compared to Japan, just in terms of the number of people. And absolutely licenses for Hong Kong feels quite a lot ultimately. What has been successful for those has there been a separation so far in this pile of aid where you see some leaders emerging and others lagging?
0: yeah very much i think when we released our first virtual bank report in hong kong back in 2020 at the start of this license process when they're all getting launched we basically said there'll be two or three that are left right and we still stick by that view Hong Kong is a very saturated market. There are a lot of banks here. I think there is a lot of merit to having digital first players in the market. You've seen that in terms of the reflection in customer count. So the leading virtual banks have an excess of half a million customers. So they've done very well in terms of driving up that uptake, particularly for the younger digital savvy generation that don't necessarily resonate as much with the stiff branding and feel of some of the banking institutions here. But the key thing is really winning the war to monetize that client base. We all know in banking, it's about the actual amount of money you have on your books and how to make that go to work. Many of them are still playing what you call the long tail game. And long tail involves hyperscale, super scale. That's the only way you can make it work. Otherwise, you have to just go deeper with the existing clients and focus on higher value-add customers, right? That's always going to be the challenge for these institutions.
1: Do you see that ecosystem that developed in Hong Kong different from what has happened in Singapore, for example?
0: I think Singapore actually paid attention to the Hong Kong story. And they originally went out with five licenses that they wanted to grant. And then that was then reduced to four. And then even then they split it to to full service to wholesales i think they saw the opportunity in the context of let's not saturate the market right we've got a very well banked population but we can try out these new players that are focused on distinct verticals to see how they run in this game i think it was probably a little bit more I don't know if the word is prudent. I always hate the discussions between Singapore and Hong Kong because it's such an old debate. I do think Singapore took note of do we need, let's say, to replicate an eight digital bank license setup. And I think starting smaller is probably the smarter thing to do, to test the waters and to see how it works rather than launching, let's say, eight players at the same time, which is quite ambitious in my view.
1: Singapore also has DBS, which has been voted the best digital bank right. globally a few yes. times, which brings us to the question of the incumbents who also have not been standing still and developing. Right. So in your view, has this gap been closing from the incumbents to the new digital banks, neobanks banks? Very much. So I think on
0: the retail side, a lot of the app consumer functionality, digital journey has improved markedly since the onset of COVID. I think the first thing that you actually noticed was the price war. So when a lot of the fees discounts came in with the virtual banks, the incumbent banks just slashed all their fees to match. So it was like, now you have no pricing advantage. What's next? What are you going to do next to topple us? And it's very easy to switch on the fees and switch off the fees. You've actually seen with a lot of the virtual banks, let's bring on customers. And you saw it with some of the ones in the UK, now we've got them on, we'll switch on some of the fees that have been off all this time. And it made people extremely unhappy. So you need to think about that pricing model very early on, and it's an easy way to win customers. You can say everything is free, we give you cash back, we give you a discount, we give you a sign-up reward, fine. But the key thing that we draw in our report is not around just the top line customer count, it's the dormancy. How many of these customers are actually actively engaged with that banking provider? Because that represents your true customer base. The rest is just wasted money. You spent a fortune to bring in a whole bunch of people to sign up, give them money, and they've gone, thank you. And I'm just gonna bank with my traditional provider.
1: That's how the European story has played out for many neobanks, right? That they are holding secondary balances, but the primary account where the salary goes in and most of the expenses go out is still with the incumbents. That's where we see some separation there nowadays as well, I think
0: i agree unless you win that primary salary kind of payroll wall i think your quest to attract deposits which you can then leverage into your lending business or a wealth business or other fee-based products is going to be far more limited we call that out in the report i think the average virtual bank deposit in hong kong on the retail side is roughly around three thousand us which is still significantly larger than places like the United Kingdom, where it's more like 300, 400 pounds. But when you compare that to an HSBC, where the average retail deposit in Hong Kong is 60,000 US, you're dealing with a very different kind of proposition in terms of what you can make go to work. This is always going to be the battle. I've heard some of the virtual bank CEOs say, no, we're fine, as long as we can be the best secondary bank account. And my view is, all right, do you actually wanna win the war for primary? Because I think there is scope to do it, but the life cycle to actually achieve a very favorable end result means you're starting with very early generation, young customers, low income earners, and then hopefully keeping them through the life of their banking journey.
1: If you need to get through the life of that banking journey, that would be a point for what saying this actually need to be the known players that have sufficient funding and backing a startup that needs to wait 10, 15 years until this student becomes a good income earner. They can hardly survive that. If you look at innovation, very often all the components are known and you break it down in your report as well, all the things that can be done in the Digital experience journey and gamification, and so on. There are hardly any secrets anymore. It's a question of how do you combine this most attractively for your consumers or the segment that you're targeting, and what's been your experience and what works in that regard? It's very true. Let's just Face it, banking world is
0: highly commoditized. The products are very comparable among different financial services players. The key thing is really around the engagement and the experience. There's not much more you can do beyond that. Make it as simple, as easy, as intuitive, as heavenly possible and make it engaging most people we go to our banking apps i'm with hsbc so i go to my banking app to do a defined task i go there because i need to transfer money i go there because i need to convert some currency when i'm going on a trip whatever it might be Beyond that, is there much pull for me to exist within this ecosystem? Everyone talks about this utopia of developing the super app where you become that centralized touch point for all of your daily leads, whether you're out shopping, ordering online, you book a flight, it's all centralized through this one app because we all have app fatigue and we don't want to go on 50 different apps to lead our daily lives. That's no fun. I think any provider that can master this kind of full suite of financial services and lifestyle offerings is going to do very well. We've actually seen that happen in Russia with the players like Tinkoff Bank and so on. I think they've really nailed it in terms of how they've developed that proposition. I think it's gonna take a lot longer for players in Asia Pacific to do it. There are naturally some wild cards where I would look at something like Grab And I would say they have technically an ecosystem which could develop and support this proposition for their bank in Singapore. But I don't think it's gonna be so straightforward. And the ones where you've seen absolute, like dominant penetration when you go to the likes of Korea with Kakao, it's because of Kakao Talk. That's the communication channel. That's the thing that people live and breathe in Korea. So you naturally pin a financial services organization on the back of that. Guess what? The FS component becomes a part of your everyday life now, right? Because that's the platform you use to communicate. It's not an easy play. And you've seen very clearly the tricks or the techniques that the banks who have become profitable have utilized to actually achieve this. We make it very clear in the report, the ones that are retail focused. This is super scale and really leveraging that parent company brand proposition and ecosystem. If you have that in place, that's very powerful. Otherwise, you have to build it and building all of those partnerships from scratch and working out, do you align with value proposition? And I've seen a lot of these signed up. But then the question is, oh, the clients will come to me and say, we've got these great partnerships, but we've got no downstream volumes or they're technically activated, but they're not achieving any meaningful move of the needle. This is so unbelievably common where a partnership and ecosystem strategy, which is what we say is so important, needs to really come to life. Uh, and unless it does, you are just bring on logos and big name partners. That it doesn't translate to any meaningful downstream revenue or p l for the actual banking provider
1: I find cow bank an, an interesting example to talk about as well because ultimately were they making most of their money already and that's projected to grow this year next year as well as mortgages so we were going back to the lending story right, right. and of course they compared to the incumbents actually saw an outflow of deposits Cow had an inflow so they seem to be even if it's still small but they seem to be taking some market share it's ultimately a lending product that drives the revenue
0: that's right that's right and most of the banks it is ultimately the lending product that drives the revenue all the interchange fees that you're getting off payments given the discounts and rewards that are being attached a lot of these are used lost loss leaders if you think what is the natural advantage of a bank relative to other non-bank institutions, is the ability to take deposits and therefore have the lowest funding costs. And if you are gonna leverage that, use that in a lending game. It might seem unsexy to look at things like long-dated mortgages or other products, but we also saw that with Oak North. We saw that with quite a few other players that said, you know what? we don't have to necessarily be the sexiest. We just focus on bread and butter. What is proven in banking that fundamentally is just not a good experience for customers who bank with incumbents. And I think that's clever. That's not trying to reinvent the wheel, that's trying to reinvent the experience on the same product.
1: What about in terms of ecosystem any non-financial retail player or consumer goods player who then wants to offer and it takes us down the road of embedded finance or banking as a service offerings right where you have already the captive customer base
0: southeast asia is dominated by the conglomerates right and a lot of these players that are setting up the vbs in these markets do have these retail in particular and SME ecosystems within their whole supply chain that they can tap into. That's quite exciting in terms of the opportunity. We've seen it like with examples when you go out to the West and the US like Apple, right? They're very clearly trying to drive their buy now, pay later product. And We were very clear in our buy now pre-later report, which came out a while back that the independent BNPL business model was up for a big shakeup and a lot of them were going to go bankrupt. We were right. And we were very clear as well that the payment providers and some of the traditional incumbent banks, as well as the tech firms, have the customer base and have the firepower to get into this. So we've now seen that prediction transpire. I think the other area that's quite interesting is really around the telco ecosystem. And I think telcos that can nail this will be very well primed to do well. And you're in Japan at the moment. So, you know, one of the prime examples is one of your telcos called KDI, right? They have spent a lot of time building their one stop shop FS platform. They've done that by buying, building and partnering with different financial services companies simultaneously. The buying process, they bought AU Jibun Bank, right? Um, that's leveraging AI with MUFG, who's the majority stakeholder. They also bought AU Cabocom, that's the online brokerage business of MUFG and they acquired a 49% stake. And you pay, right? They did that as a build, that's their own e-wallet with their reward systems embedded. So that acted as the gateway to these other financial services. And then they also did the partnership to form AU Asset Management, and that was partnering with Daiwa Securities. So they basically built, here's the banking platform, here's the brokerage platform, here's the payment platform, and here's the investment platform through these different partnerships. And they have the captive customer ecosystem, 32 million AU Pay members. That's a big, smart, strategic play in terms of how a telco that dominates a huge customer base can really add value to people who are on their phones all the time.
1: It comes back to do we need a bank? If wallets provide the functionality that you need in your daily life, everything that you've just described, right? A wallet tied to my phone number that can hold a certain amount of cash and anything that goes over a threshold that is not allowable from an email perspective you put into money market funds or investments etc again maybe you need a bank as a backstop behind it but technically you can live your life out of a digital wallet that is tied into your phone number or even without your phone number
0: I agree. I think banks will become much more funding channels rather than the core providers themselves in certain markets as these other non banking sectors step up and start to develop their financial services proposition but the funding channel is the most important low cost funding right the other side of it is arguable whether you need the compliance and or regulatory oversight of banks that's obviously been called into question so many times with recent bank failures how robust is this deposit protection mechanism is another overlay right so with A lot of these other stored value facilities they may not be protected to the same degree as a deposit guarantee by a national government so there are elements associated with trust but again even in the current banking crisis we're seeing many of the smaller regional banks even the united states have seen a massive outflow in customer deposits and they're all gravitating towards the top of the pyramid of the perceived safest banks in the world And even when you look at the likes of Credit Suisse, which had a perception of being extremely safe as a Swiss bank, we can see very clearly that's not always the case. I think this ecosystem will continue to evolve. It makes it really exciting to see who's going to come in and ultimately offer something different I don't think anyone looks at their incumbent banking provider and is filled with happy, joy feelings about the experience every day. I think most people understand they've been through pain, they get whacked with big fees, it still happens all the time, and they're searching for solutions that can do this, but no one at this point enjoys the process of having multiple accounts, multiple functions, multiple this, multiple that. I think the fatigue of going through various applications that define one proposition, it's all well and good for one service, but we all demand as selfish consumers these days, centralized convenience, right? And the people that crack that, they're the ones I think that will stand out the best, but the race to be a super app, it's not an easy one.
1: Go back to Hong Kong once more, because what in the Western world is not so well known as WeBank, and you have the digital bank in Hong Kong, but you have the Neobank monster in mainland China, must be one of the biggest banks in the world, 300 million customers. 360 million retail
0: and 3.4 million SME.
1: Otherwise, we use Nubank in Brazil as an example, but they are maybe at 80 million these days. So WeBank is still a multiple of that. And that's a story that you don't hear that much about in the West. WeBank was able to
0: successfully leverage the penetration of WeChat, right? (laughs) There's 1.3 billion monthly WeChat users. So that's a very easy kind of way to integrate with a parent brand platform that has touch points with all the target customers you want to go after. And then of course, you can then leverage the data from WeChat to filter who you actually want to go after very cleanly. And their lending model is quite different, right? They do the collaborative lending model. They co-fund with partner banks. They do that at a two to eight ratio they share the income at a three to seven ratio, that interest income, and they earn 10% on a channel fee on top of that. So it goes to my point of, they're not wearing all the risk on their books. They're actually sharing this with partner banks that also want to leverage their balance sheet, get additional interest income, but don't necessarily have the data that a WeBank would. An extremely successful business model. I have a lot of admiration for what they've been able to do, and they're very profitable. They generated about one and a half billion in profits last year, and they're still growing fast. Kudos to WeBank for their growth story.
1: It was this collaboration with other banks that I was after, because when we talk about ecosystem, we often mean complementary industries, some retail and whatever else. But here it's really an ecosystem of banks across China that they've built. It's a very different type of ecosystem.
0: Yeah, let's say you're sitting on a very low LDR, right? Your balance sheet is not optimized for the assets and liabilities. And part of the mandate from your management is you need to generate more interest income. We've got way too many deposits on the books and this is costing us money. And you can either pump it through your own credit teams or slow processes and things that take a lot of time, take a lot of costs to actually fulfill a loan, or you can partner with people that are experts in this and say, why don't we just ride with your distribution channel? And why don't we share some risk with you? We're partially protected on our downside as well. So it does make a lot of sense. Not every single bank is gonna be biting on that, but I can assure you, there are a lot of smaller regional players that are like, how do we grow our lending book? And how do we grow it in a way that doesn't cost us a fortune? So these partnerships do open interesting propositions. You're actually seeing as well some of the SME lenders, and we give the example of Oak North. So Oak North Master in the United Kingdom, when they went on their offshore expansion strategy, they are offering credit scoring as a service. That is their international expansion model. We nailed this for the UK. How would you like us to develop this kind of a model for you offshore? and you license it from us, right? And you pay us a SaaS fee. What an interesting model. Now, of course, many of the actual SME banks are considering this. I know quite a few are looking at it. Like we've mastered something that the traditional incumbents can't do, piggyback off our technology. But there's inevitably a process where you have to share risk or wear risk at the start to prove that it works to prove that you're not gonna blow out MPLs from the bank's books. And you can structure different commercial arrangements to ultimately arrive at an outcome that works for both parties. And they augment over time. And it goes back to one of the first comments that I raised during this session, which is even the SME lenders wanna get most of that balance sheet exposure off their books because these are technology plays in their view. You don't wanna be valued at price to price the book you want to be valued on the basis of your SaaS multiple, right? Your revenue multiple. And they all understand this. They all would like to exit. Not many of them are really keen on being a traditional bank, especially from a valuation
1: perspective. Another point that you made in your report is the future markets. And you've taken a delta of the mobile phone penetration and the banked ratio and Vietnam came out on top 70% mobile phone penetration, but only just over 30% banking penetration. So that looked very promising. On the other hand, as you go into these markets, all the problems that we talked about of having relatively low balances, still low level of wealth get amplified. So you need to be really frugal in your tech stack and customer acquisition to make that work profitably.
0: Yeah, it's true. I'm not going to go into markets like Vietnam and Indo and double down on a wealth proposition right now. It's know your markets. That's the credit problem. That's the lending problem. That's what you have to solve primarily. And payments is an enabler or gasoline that fuels a lot of this. But by the same token, even if you're looking in more developed markets and you're trying to develop that wealth proposition, as I say, Hong Kong, the lazy cash balances sitting at the incumbent banks, it's very hard to get that money out of the banks. So let's just take robo. Robo penetration in Hong Kong is very low. It's extremely low. Um, It's growing, but there's this magical 500,000 US to 5 million US sweet spot. That's what everyone wants to target. We've seen some of the banks launch their premier branches or other things that people just go, is that really it? Like I'm technically high net worth, but I feel like a glorified retail customer. And all of the private banks have increased their thresholds now to 10 million. You want to bank with JP Goldman, you need 10 million US dollars. So there's this massive white space. of just completely dissatisfied customers Paying 150 basis points for a subscription fee to buy a bloody mutual fund with their bank, plus the annual fees and they're going why am I paying all this money, so we get the proposition but. Part of the story, and I often joke about this, is I'm half Chinese myself and Asians love to gamble. That's why you haven't seen the ETF story or the passive story take off as much here. We all think we can beat the market. Go to any casino around the world, (laughs) you'll see who's trying to beat the house. So I think with that perspective, there is still a long education story that needs to be delivered here, particularly in certain markets where. You're not going to beat the market you're not going to outperform the market there are services that can really reduce costs and i tell you your delta over the next 30 years just from fees alone you're going to have 30 40 percent more in your investment account but that's a painful long and expensive story to tell people and and it's not easy to flip someone with two three million dollars in their bank who's a professional lawyer or banker over to one of these platforms through a social media ad where i think that demographic responds quite differently
1: i've been in japan on and off for 25 years and everything you just described with a large bank balance is very much true here as well and nobody's been able to crack that if you find a way to crack that, and it sounds like hong kong is the same right then there's a lot of money to be made I think if the incumbents
0: have the appetite to develop these digital wealth propositions themselves, of which some of them have done and they've been enabled by the B2B wealth tech such as the feeds, the bamboos of this world, I believe there's a lot of potential there. There's trillions of dollars sitting on the balance sheets of these banks idle, doing nothing. And key question is getting them to extract the money out of their primary banking provider into a separate app where there may be concerns around who custodies this and is it safe and is it protected. If the banks can just make this simple, if the banks can offer, hey, every time you put your salary in why don't you put 10% into this investment account, right? This digital investment account, we'll look after it. We have our own robo tools. What's your risk profile? What are your preferences? What themes you like? And let's construct something that just sits there and grows, hopefully (laughs) over time as you bank with us. Many of the banks haven't got this in place and they're still using the RM product push model. And I personally hate it, And just two weeks ago, I was pushed quite aggressively a product that I didn't necessarily want. I gave 30 minutes of an explanation as to why I disagreed with the bank's view on it. Eventually I was sold into buying it. I lost 15% two weeks, right? So it's my responsibility at the end of the day. But I think that none of us really look at this experience and say, this is positive, this is enjoyable.
1: Obviously, you're putting the reports out, not because it's so much fun writing them, although I think it is actually, it's fun to do the research, but you're running a consultancy business, as we said before, and you're looking to help companies who want to improve in this space, leveraging the intelligence that You have gathered look
0: we're here to help is the long and short of it i don't make the marketing so explicit we don't conduct that kind of marketing and advertising approach we take a lot of pride in our research and many of the things that we say may not make people happy and that is okay as long as they're factual as long as they're grounded in data and evidence and real life stories and things that we've seen We're happy to tell the market Often joke, it's quite counterintuitive at times to release a report called buy now, pray later, send it to 150 buy now, pay later CEOs, and basically say, Hey, this is our take on your business. We hate advertorials. We we don't go out with a view to just promote an industry for the sake of it. We don't have a predefined research plan in mind. We have a flow of what we're going to investigate and a structure for What we call a funnel of research and whatever arrives at the end whatever we can then deduce not induce out of nowhere whatever we don't hypothesize what do the facts tell us we will just say it and and i think to be honest that is the most valuable thing you can do for this industry is just to say it as it is there's no need to sugarcoat all of this data and facts present it honestly, present it with integrity and talk about there's always a path forward. If Even if there are problems, there are ways to fix it. Uh, and hopefully along that journey, uh, we add value to our clients in the process. But yeah, it's been a fun experience and obviously something I love doing. So it's when you talk about fun writing this stuff, we absolutely love it.
1: Great. That's a very good note to end on. So thank you very much, Ben. Really appreciate the conversation and we'll obviously share the link to the report in the podcast description as well. And for anybody who hasn't read it yet and want to dive deeper post this conversation, please do take a look.
0: Yep, excellent. Thanks, Norbert. And anyone that actually wants to read our reports, we're one of the few firms around the world that does not ask for your email or details to download it. We know no one likes to get pestered, so it's all freely available. Just click on it, read whatever you want. It's all freely available. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Norbert. Much appreciated.